When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome. <clears throat> this is the start of the unit two. Uh, this is the large one. It's uh, unit two is going to be anywhere from twenty-five to thirty-six percent of your exam. <clears throat> so um, the next couple podcasts are, you know, the the biggest content area we have. Um, I'm going to try and fit all of Congress into one podcast and the president and then the judicial branch um, into separate ones. So I'm looking hopefully 10 to 15 minutes. Um, so with that said, let's get let's get rolling. Uh, all right. So topic 2.1 is titled Congress, the Senate and the House of Reps. And the learning objective for the first one is to describe the different structure, power and functions of each House of Congress. So there's only three topics specific to Congress. However, the whole entire unit is called the interactions among the branches. So just keep in mind that as we go, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about will be connecting, hey, Congress does this with the president, president does this with the Congress, Congress does this with the judicial branch, and so forth. So just keep that in mind. But uh, let's go through the essential knowledge stuff. Uh, first off, the Senate and the House. All right, the Senate, remember, from uh, the Great Compromise is, is, was created to represent states equally, so everybody has two, or excuse me, every state does. And then the House is based on population, so that's going to vary. So Georgia, we have 14 representatives. Other places, it's going to vary. Uh, California has the most with 53. Uh, Texas has 36. New York has 27. Florida has 27. Uh, Illinois has 18. So it just it's it's all over the place uh, how many people, people have. Uh, some of the differences. Um, for the House, you got to be 25. You have to be seven years a citizen, and you have to live in the state. The Senate, it's 39 and still live in the state. Now, for the House, there's no requirement to live in the district, but if you don't live in the district, it's going to be used against you. So it's, it's, it's recommended. I should say recommended. If you're running for office as a for a House seat, you don't want to live outside of that district. You want to live in that district. Uh, the different chamber sizes and constituencies, influence, formality of debate. So remember that the House is super strict. They have lots of rules because there's 435 of them. It's almost impossible for them to sit down and have a discussion. In fact, it, it's not almost impossible. It would be impossible for 435 people to sit in their chamber and have a discussion. It's just not going to happen. Alrighty. So they have some strict rules. They you know, dictate who's going to talk for a specified amount of time. Uh, and all that kind of stuff versus the Senate, excuse me, versus the Senate where it's uh, more laid back. There's not that rule for debate. They can talk more because there's a hundred of them. Okay. Um, and then the constituencies also play a role there because remember, the House is representing a small group of people. I mean, you know, 800,000 people is a small group, but when you compare it to the entire state, a group of people versus having to represent the entire state. So there's going to be differences that, that happen there. Something that's good for Gwinnett County in our district is not going to be good for the entire state. 
potentially. So that's going to play a role uh, in those sorts of things. Um, coalitions in Congress are affected by term length differences. So first off, you do have different coalitions. You have the Republicans, you have Democrats, you have independents, obviously, but you also have some breakdowns uh, within those parties. So maybe it's on the geographic stuff. So Southern senators, Northern representatives are going to group together. Uh, it can be down race. It can be down sex, religion. Uh, so there's different groupings <clears throat> in Congress. Uh, on the Senate side, you have a little more time with your coalitions versus the House, where you only have two years. And you got to run for re-election. So you, know, you might be a part of something, and then all of a sudden, hey, I'm not re-elected. I'm out. And there's somebody new there. Uh, let's see. The enumerated and implied powers in the Constitution allow the creation of public policy by Congress, which includes. So remember, enumerated are those powers that are in the Constitution. It's written, it is stated, it is said, all right? Implied powers are those powers from the Necessary and Proper Clause slash Elastic Clause, where it says they can do this specifically, so therefore they can do this, all right? Those are those implied powers where maybe they don't necessarily read it in the Constitution, but if you interpret the Constitution a certain way, it's that. Uh, all right, so these things include passing a federal budget, raising revenue and coining money. These are all things they have to do. Um, <clears throat> Congress plays a huge role in passing the budget. They will get a budget from the president, and then they'll go through it, and they'll make changes, additions, subtractions, whatever. They'll work with the president, maybe, depending upon if they're from the same party and have the same goals, and then they'll eventually pass it, and the president will sign it, uh, just like a regular old law. Uh, raising revenue, so they are charged with, you know, how do we raise revenue, uh, have, raise money for the country. Um, that could be through taxes. <clears throat> I mean, that's going to be the biggest thing. Uh, it's not that they're having bake sales and things like that. Uh, and then coining money. That's an enumerated power. Congress is the only one that can coin money, meaning they can have the Treasury print off money. Uh, they're the only ones that can, can declare war. So that's enumerated. Uh, it takes the full Congress to declare war. And then maintaining the armed services, the armed forces, that is their job. So the, the, the president is the commander in chief, but actually maintaining, supplying, uh, funding, all that kind of stuff, that comes from Congress. Uh, and then the final part there is enacting legislation that addresses a wide range of economic, environmental, and social issues based on the necessary and proper clause. So what does that mean? <clears throat> they have enumerated powers, they have applied powers, and they use those to try and solve economic problems, to try and solve environmental problems, to try and so solve some of the social problems, because it doesn't say everything in the Constitution. There's nowhere in the Constitution does it talk about the environment. It just wasn't a concern back then, right? But uh, they still make environmental laws. They make environmental policies, okay? Um, so it is the stretching of their powers to create legislation that can address the issues that we see today that may not have been foreseen back in the day. All righty. Uh, all right, moving on to 2.2, structures, powers, and functions of Congress. The main learning objective here <clears throat> is explain how the structure, powers, and functions of both houses of Congress affect the policymaking process. All righty. Uh, so we've already talked about the different structures, how the Senate uh, and the House are different in that um, the Senate is 100 people based on the state. And then the House is going to be based on population. So we know this. Um, and those structures, those rules, all those sorts of things that, that, that are differences are going to, to play a role 
in the policymaking process. So remember, a bill has to pass both sides. So something that can pass the House easily, maybe, all right, might not pass the Senate so easily because of the differences. Maybe there's more debate over there or whatever it might be. And vice versa, something that passes through the Senate uh, might not make it through the House. Uh, maybe it's because of different constituencies. I think if I remember correctly, just within the last few weeks, I think it was the Senate passed a bill that would make America go on just one time. There would be no changing in the clocks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't think it's going to go through the House because for whatever reason, I haven't seen a good reason for why it, not, why it wouldn't, but uh, I haven't heard anything else about it. So just the differences there. Uh, let's see. Both chambers rely on committees to conduct hearings and debate bills under consideration. Different constitutional responsibilities in the House and Senate affect the policymaking process. Okay. First off, committees. There are four types of committees. Uh, the big one that you probably really need to know is the standing committees. These are the permanent committees and then there's subcommittees from there. Uh, but, you know, just as long as you can understand sub, I mean, uh, uh, committees and standing committees, uh, they are the kind of overarching committees. Uh, committees, meaning they cover most of the areas of the country, like economic or environmental or whatever it might be. Uh, and they're going to get every bill that deals with that. Okay. So that's one of their jobs. They're going to get the bills. They're going to research. They're going to have hearings. They're going to make changes. Uh, and they will eventually vote favorably or not for that bill. And then they also conduct oversight hearings. So whenever a bureaucratic agency screws up, or does something wrong, or is upsetting Congress by the way they're enforcing a law or whatever it might be, they might call them in and question them and ask what's going on. Do they need to get to the bottom of why um, this is being done the way it's being done? All right. Um, <laughs> excuse me. The other types, um, there is the conference committee. This is when a bill passes the House, and then a bill that's similar passes the Senate, and they're not the same. So a conference committee comes together from both sides and they work together to try and sort it out. All right. Uh, not permanent. Uh, then there is the select committee. The select committee, maybe sometimes called the special committee, uh, is a non-permanent committee called for some kind of investiga investigative purpose. So, for example, the January 6th stuff that's going on right now is a House select committee. They have been called together to, to, to investigate that specific issue. And once it's over, they will go away. All right. It's only House. It's only Senate. So there's House select committees. There's Senate select committees. And then the final one is a joint committee. A joint committee is going to be called together from both sides, and they will report something to the country. The 9-11 report is an example of that. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. So some procedures and rules that impact the policymaking progress include. So there's like five bullets here. So let's run through those. Number of chamber and debate rules that set the bar, bar high for building majority support. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Once again, the uh, House has a lot of debate rules and, you know, it's, uh, it's sometimes difficult to get um, that majority support. Um, However, we are very partisan nowadays. And so a lot of times, especially in the House, is going to be down party lines. And so um, even though there are debate issues, debate rules in place and that sort of stuff, and no debate rules on the Senate side, <clears throat> um, you know, the House, it's, it's not as hard on the House side to me 
to get the uh, the majority. Now, the Senate side is a little more difficult because you only got the 100. And uh, <clears throat> like, for instance, right now with the Senate, you've got a couple of Democratic senators who aren't voting with the Democrats, Joe Manchin um, and the lady from uh, Arizona. Her name's escaping my mind right now. Um, but anyways, you know, they're they're not voting down party lines. So um, it, it's, it, it can be an issue there. Uh, some roles, roles of the Speaker of the House, President of the Senate, party leadership and committee leadership in both chambers. So the Speaker of the House, most important position in all of Congress, they are, um, <clears throat> they're third in command. I mean, if the President and Vice President go down, the Speaker is next up, but they run the, the House, okay? Uh, right now it's Nancy Pelosi. She gets to make a lot of decisions. She gets to really push the legislative agenda on the House side. Um, she helps with the committee uh, work. I mean, not the committee work, but uh, setting the committees, setting the committee chairperson, uh, working with the rules committee really dictates a lot of what's going to happen in the House. The president of the Senate is the vice president, okay, but they're never there, remember. So you have the president pro tempore, who uh, is just kind of a, a uh, honorary role. It's not, they don't really have much power like the speaker does. Uh, party leadership. So you have the majority minority leader uh, on the House side. The majority leader works with the, the speaker. The minority leader doesn't have much to do on the House side because they're in the minority. And it's really, there's not much you can do other than just be waiting uh, for your chance to be the, the speaker or the majority leader. On the Senate side, you got the majority minority leader and they're, they really kind of run the show. Uh, the majority leader is going to, to dictate really Although they're not really supposed to, they've kind of gotten to where they dictate what's happening in the Senate. The majority leader does. Uh, committee leadership is always going to be the majority party. So right now the Democrats are the committee chairpersons for all the committees <clears throat> in the House and the Senate. And this is a big deal because they really get to dictate what's going to happen, okay, uh, in the committees. And remember that most bills die in committee. So a bill gets to the committee chairperson, and if they want to let it die, they don't. They just don't schedule it. We're not going to have a hearing on this. We're not going to have a debate on it in, in our committee. We're just going to be done. Uh, filibuster and cloture. Filibuster, remember, uh, you see it as talking a bill to death. Remember, though, it's just trying to delay action on a bill. This is a Senate-only thing because they don't have um, rules and regulations for the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh for debate. So in theory, you can get up and you can talk about a bill forever. All right. Um, the goal here is, is to try and stop the majority party because this is a minority party tool. <clears throat> Excuse me, struggling right now. But uh, so the Senate has tons of bills they're working on. It's not just this one bill. And so if you can stop action on this bill, you delay and hold up every other bill that's trying to come down uh, to the Senate floor to be talked about and voted on. So you hold that up enough, you put enough pressure on the majority party, maybe they give in to some of your demands. That's the goal of the filibuster. Now, it can be stopped by a cloture. A cloture motion just means we're going to end debate and we're going to go straight to a vote on the issue. All right, you need 60. So if you ever have 60 uh, of your party in the Senate, then you have a supermajority and you can really do whatever you want to. Holds and unanimous consent in the Senate. So more Senate-only stuff. Holds used to be a really good thing. Because back in the day, uh, if I'm a senator from, from Georgia here, and I'm from Atlanta, but there's an agricultural bill that's coming down, I might not know enough about it. And I might go to the majority leader and be like, hey, can I 
have a day or two to, to look over this agricultural bill and get some input so I, I can know if it's going to be good for my constituents or not. Can I put a hold on it? And you could put a hold on it for legitimate re legit reasons. Nowadays, it's more of a tool, uh, and it's not used super often, but it can be used to, to stop a bill for a little bit. Okay. And then unanimous consent is where we're going to bypass some of the um, some of the parliament, parliamentary procedure, uh, I guess is the best way to put it. So uh, if we want to not have debate on this one, then we might have a unanimous consent vote. If uh, we want to change the voting rules or whatever it might be, uh, if you're going to change something, you do it through unanimous consent. Uh, role of the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee is the most important position, our most important committee in the, in the House, and it's only on the House side. Uh, every bill goes to a committee, and then once they vote on it, they send it to the full house. But before it gets to the full house, it goes to the rules committee and they are going to set the agenda for it. They're going to say, we're going to talk about it on this date. We're going to talk about it for this long. This is the people who can talk. So they can really do a lot of stuff and control uh, a lot of things that happen with the bill because of that. Uh, committee of the whole is a uh, house thing. So to get around the debate rules that they have in place, they will sometimes just say, okay, all 435 of us are going to be a committee. Therefore, we're not as the House, whereas a committee from the House. And the committee doesn't have the debate rule. So they can talk about an issue as long as they want to if they go that way. Um, discharge petitions in the House. So if a bill has been sitting in a committee for a long period of time, I think it's 30 days, uh, I can make a petition to pull the bill out. All righty. Even if nothing has happened. Now, the problem with doing this is typically the majority party is going to have made the decision that that bill is going to sit. And so if I pull it out, the majority party probably is not going to, to vote for my stuff. Treaty ratification and confirmation role of the U.S. Senate. <clears throat> so remember the Senate, and if you ever write about this, remember the Senate is the only ones that uh, are going to ratify treaties and confirm presidential appointments. Okay, uh, so that's a big deal because they have that power and they can really kind of influence the president's picks for uh, positions in the government, uh, who they're making and how they're making treaties and all that sort of stuff because the Senate can always come out and say, we're not going to confirm that person. We're going to, uh, you're going to have to pick somebody else. So they, they have that power and that ability. Although they don't use it too often because it's kind of understood. We want to let the president have people that they trust and they, and they want. All right, Congress must generate a budget <clears throat> that addresses both discretionary and mandatory spending. And as entitlement costs grow, discretionary spending opportunities will decrease unless tax revenues increase or the budget deficit increases. So let's talk about those terms there, discretionary and mandatory spending. Discretionary spending, this is spending that allows Congress some choices. They can spend it here if they want to. They can spend it over here if they want to. They have some choices. They have some options. Mandatory spending, they have written into their laws that they have to spend on this. Social Security, they have to spend on. They can't say, well, you know what? We're not going to spend on Social Security this year. They have to. It's mandatory. Okay. Uh, entitlement costs. <clears throat> the, if you go back to your econ days, you got entitlement versus means tested. Entitlement means you get this regardless. So Social Security is an entitlement, meaning if you get to that age where you start collecting Social Security, you get it regardless of whether you need it or not versus means tested where you have to hit a certain level. <clears throat> Excuse me. So all of those things play a role in the budget. And, uh, you know, if the budget's uh, here up, then they have to be able to raise money to spend on that stuff. Um, they have to find a place, uh, find find somewhere uh, to get that that money from. And then pork barrel legislation and log rolling. 
pork barrel, uh, these are bills that are going to really only benefit the representatives or senators, districts or states. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just stuff that happens. Okay. Uh, you're going to work for your, for your constituents <clears throat> and you want to get as much for them as possible and the best stuff possible for them. Uh, and so sometimes you're going to come across bills that really only affect and benefit them. And sometimes those things get passed through. You might do it through log rolling where, Hey, uh, I'll do this favor for you. If you do this favor for me. So it's a, a process in, uh, in Congress and it's been around forever. Okay. Where sometimes there are bills and money that's going to a district that only is going to benefit that district. Okay. I, I've gone 20 minutes and uh, there's just a lot of stuff here. So let's, let's do this last one. 2.3. It's congressional behavior. Go as quick as I can. Uh, the learning objective is to explain how congressional behavior is influenced by election processes, partisanship, and divided government. Uh, and so we're getting into um, some things here about gridlock, about gerrymandering, uh, and then some election stuff. So uh, we'll try and get this done as quickly as possible because you've already been listening for, for 21 minutes almost. Uh, all right. So divisions in Congress can lead to gridlock. So basically when you know, if you have a House controlled by the Republicans, a Senate controlled by the Democrats, you're going to have a, a deadlock because nothing's going to get done. If you have a president for one party and Congress from another, you're going to get to some gridlock stuff there. Uh, and we really need to be able to, this is where compromise really needs to be able to come into play and negotiations and things like that. Uh, something I feel like we struggle with nowadays in our Congress, but it's something that needs to happen. Okay. Uh, the next topic is gerrymandering. Alrighty, so let's go down the steps real quick. Uh, first off, gerrymandering happens from redistricting, which happens from reapportionment, which happens from the census. Okay, so we just got the census done in 2020, and we know our numbers, and our numbers have changed. All right, and because uh, some states gained population, they also gained seats in the House. Since they gained some seats, some states lost seats. All right. So reapportionment is just the reconfiguration of that 435. That 435 stays the same in the House. And so based on the population changes and shifts, you're going to have people uh, or uh, you're going to have some states gain and some states lose seats. Uh, if a state gains, once again, they have to another state has to lose some seats, all right? Because of reapportionment, it leads to redistricting. Now, every state will redistrict because there's population shifts within states. Even if you don't gain enough people to get a seat or you don't lose enough people to lose a seat, you still are probably going to redistrict to try and even out your districts. So we have the census, and then we have reapportionment, and then everybody's going to redistrict. Now, the states do the redistricting. It is not the the House, it's not the Senate, it's not a congressional thing, it's not a federal thing, it is the state legislatures. And the redistricting is just where you redraw the lines, okay? And you, you're trying to get, uh, the, the exact numbers is escaping me, but somewhere around 800,000 people per district, okay? You want to keep it as equal as possible. And so that can lead to gerrymandering, where the lines get drawn to benefit the party and controls party and try and keep control for the next 10 years. So that can happen. It is legal. All right. It does happen. Um, but they, the lines can be challenged now. All right. And that comes from two required court cases we got. You have Baker versus Carr and Shaw versus Reno. 
Sure, Baker versus Carr, first off, please hear me here, is not a gerrymandering case. Baker versus Carr is a redistricting case. So the state of Tennessee had not redistricted since 1900. This case was settled in 1962. Okay. And so um, Shelby County, Tennessee was overpopulated. They had a ton of people move in and because they had not redistricted, there had been no relief. So they were underrepresented because there are so many people there versus some of the rural areas, which are overrepresented because there are so few people there. And so uh, the reason this case is important is two things. First off, it gives us the one person, one vote doctrine where we want to try and keep um, the districts as even as possible to make everybody's vote equal and to have uh, the same amount of representation. And also it is going to be one of the first times or actually the first time in, uh, in forever that the court had addressed the redistricting issue. Okay, up to this point, they said, no, that's a political issue. We don't solve those kinds of issues. And so Baker versus Carr opened the door to that. The other case you need to know is Shaw versus Reno. Uh, and this one deals with racial uh, gerrymandering. Okay, the state of North Carolina had uh, drawn a district, which was uh, they had kind of pigeonholed or packed in African-American voters along Corridor 85. And um, the, the Supreme Court is going to rule that you can't draw lines based on, on racial uh, demographic. So you, you can't try and pack groups of voters into one zone. All right. Uh, let's see. Elections that have led to a divided government include partisan votes against presidential initiatives and congressional refusal to confirm appointments of lame duck presidents of the opposite party. Basically, what this is saying is that when you have a divided government, when you have the president from one party and the Congress from another party, it leads to trouble and problems because they're not going to work together. Okay, and that's what the partisan stuff means. Um, the presidential agenda is going to come to a standstill. For example, here, November 22, if the Republicans take control of the House and the Senate, Biden, his presidency is going to grind to a halt because they're not going to work together. Finally, the different role conceptions of trustee, delegate, and politico as a constituent thing. So <clears throat> the trustee, this means they are going to act how they think is best. So you voted for me. Now I'm going to, to vote on things as I see fit. Okay. I'm going to do what's best for you, but I'm going to vote for you. Alrighty. Um, and then the delegate is the opposite. They're going to be uh, voting for stuff regardless of how they feel. They're going to base it on, the uh the constituents so a trustee doesn't take into account what their constituents want a delegate does and even if they have to go against their personal beliefs they're going to vote for that stuff a politico is going to do both okay so a politico is going to do both they're going to combine them <clears throat> excuse me uh, and most politicians do the politico stuff uh, they'll go the trustee model on things that aren't big aren't that important typically and they'll go delegate on things that are going to be big and newsworthy so that they don't get uh, upset their constituents. Because at the end of the day, that's what they want to do is hold on to their constituents. All right, guys. So a lot of stuff from this unit, this, this first part of the unit. I went way longer than I meant to. And I apologize for that. But the key things, remember, um, the court cases, you got to know Baker versus Carr, Shaw versus Reno. The document, there's only one document from this part, and that is the uh, Constitution. So a very broad thing. Just know Article 1 sets up Congress. 
Uh, if you can reference that, you should be in pretty good shape. All right, guys, as always, if you have questions, please reach out on uh, Remind, on email, uh, on social media, whatever you got to do to get a hold of me, come find me in class uh, or school, and I'll answer any questions you have. All right, guys, hope all is well. Take care. Bye-bye.